Our battered suitcases were piled on the sidewalk again. We had longer ways to go, but no matter. The road is life. Jack Kerouac on the road. We all carry suitcases filled with the flotsam and jetsam of our experiences. These satchels are that which is us. And we open them and share them in order to connect. Every road is an adventure. Every path a journey. Most are mundane and normal. Some are quite peculiar. I'm Don Hall, and these are my peculiar journeys. Extraordinary events tend to thwart future progress. Dana and I took a road trip to Ann Arbor, Michigan one winter to get out of Vegas for a weekend and explore. The beauty of hitting little places, snagging a cheap hotel room, and wandering around is the often amazing discoveries one finds. An alley covered with graffiti that you didn't expect to see, a bookstore with signed first editions of ancient texts, a deli known for its outlandishly delicious breakfasts, and museums. I love museums, and of course, there's a grand art museum in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and the signage touted a special collection celebrating art from the 90s. Now, Danny's from the 90s, being the decade she came of age, and while I'm from the 80s, I can still delve in with both nostalgia and perspective. The collection was superb. From their blurb, Come As You Are, Art of the 1990s provides a fresh look at the art of the pivotal decade between the fall of the Berlin Wall and 9-11. The exhibition, whose title references the 1992 Nirvana song, considered by many an anthem for the decade, focuses on three principal themes, debates over identity politics, the digital revolution, and globalization. Is the first major museum survey to examine the art of this pivotal decade. Well, given that we were viewing this collection some 15 years following the attack on New York, what struck me was how forward-thinking artists were just prior to that event and how 9-11-2001 practically forced these ideas underground. The fear-mongering, the conservative desire to suppress ideas of digital revolution, of a more vocal pursuit of equity among the LGBTQ and trans communities, almost fully quelled the artistic movement of the time period. It seemed that we were on the right track with artists really digging deep into problems a peaceful society should mine only to be almost instantly snuffed out with the reading of a children's book while planes were smashed into buildings. In Las Vegas right now, in the wake of the virus, is a sense of desperate calm. People now suddenly out of jobs as most of the work here is on hold until other people can fly here to party. The freshly unemployed clinging to the notion that things will soon get back to normal while fighting that nagging feeling that it will never be what it was only a month or so ago. Soon the reality of having no income and no work will set in. Just around the corner of Flamingo and Las Vegas Boulevard is the very beginnings of what could become our Mad Max universe. All cheap gas and violence battling it out for warlord supremacy centered around potable water in the desert. Whether things get that bad or not, I believe that the progress society has made in terms of equity and justice and activism will be overshadowed by fear and anguished need. The art of those most motivated by empowering those with less may be brushed under the dark and soiled shag carpeting of disaster. 
In a world dominated by toilet paper hoarding, hoarding and a power grab for masks and ventilators, the poetry slam and the digital art isn't, hasn't got a chance unless we actively rebuke the 9-11 template and hoard instead ideas. Ideas and art, stories and songs and films, books and paintings and insane performance pieces that challenge the paradigm that left us so miserably unprepared for a pandemic that was foretold by so many. Extraordinary events tend to thwart future progress, but they don't have to. And welcome to episode 71 of Peculiar Journeys. Okay, so here's a quick update. As of this recording, the rumor mill is that my casino will open May 1st, but maybe June 1st. And here's the thing about the rumor mill around here is that, is that uh, there are a couple. I've, I've not participated in Twitter for most of the time I've been a Twitter member. I just kind of ignored it because it's a pain in the ass. And people are the worst of the worst when they're on Twitter. However, Vital Vegas and locally Las Vegas, or Las Vegas locally, I can't remember, are both uh, local Twitter accounts here in Las Vegas. And for some reason, they are, they are connected in such a way that they find out the information before anybody else does. They're, they're really good at scooping everybody else. And uh, so I knew prior to us closing the casino because of the coronavirus, I knew well in advance, at least a couple of days in advance that we were closing. I knew the timelines of certain things. I knew when casinos were closing. I knew what the essential businesses they were going to try to keep open were all because of these Twitter things. So we've been told May 1st, Vital Vegas says that it's going to be June 1st. Um, probably the next time you hear from me on the podcast, I'll have a little bit more information. But that's kind of how it's working for me right now. I found a lot more value out of Twitter than I expected. It's still a wasteland and a vast pit of bullshit. But there's some nice diamonds you can find in there. Speaking of diamonds, uh, Dana and I received our tax refund and our two stimulus checks. We each get one. Um, in term, terms of hardship from the pandemic, uh, I will have to say that she and I have have done pretty well. I'm still employed and I'm still getting a check. We have a nice apartment. It's not very expensive because Las Vegas is not a very expensive city to live in. Uh, with everything closed, uh, we've actually spent very little money in general. And as Jerry Schulman wrote on my Facebook wall once, I seem to have a knack for being in the right place at the right time. So I think being in Las Vegas right now during this pandemic and the shutdown has actually been exactly that, the right place and the right time. I was thinking about the botched horror of the fire festival the other day. This led me to be thinking about the Chicago fire festival created by Red Moon Theater, where the city spent a whole freaking truckload of money. And on the night of the event, no one could get anything lit on fire. The research done claiming the overwhelming benefits of allowing for mistakes is tantamount, yet we still punish anyone who makes them. We love nothing more than for someone to make a huge error so that we can then weigh in on how we wouldn't have done that and what a huge piece of shit the mistaken party has become. The disconnect is boggling. I recall seeing a play in Chicago decades ago. It was huge and sprawling and a fucking mess. The ambition was obvious. A young theater company with dreams of doing something epic fell flat on their faces. I mean, they really blew it in the show's excess, an attempt to bring something huge and amazing into the world. A few years later, that very same theater company had grown in, into their dreams and managed to snag a lifelong $1 per year lease with the city in the heart of downtown. The thing is, I loved 
the huge mistake. I admired the sack it took to try. It was truly a horrible piece of theater, but it was so obvious how hungry this company was, I could only grin and hope things went well for these folks, which it did. It's one thing to admire a plucky group of Northwestern University graduates in a storefront theater for dreaming big and failing. After all, the number of people who were afflicted with this thing was pretty small in number. It's another to admire the mistakes that affect a larger grouping of the tribe. In the heat of the moment, we all fuck up once in a while. In the wake of possibility to get busy with someone, maybe we step over a boundary or two. To get a laugh, we push an edge just a bit too far. In the comfort of our homes, we t tweet something we might regret later. I work in a casino now. The culture from a corporate standpoint is that everything is being surveilled 24 hours a day. The purpose of this originally was to catch those seeking to cheat the casino. Nowadays, it's more often used to spy on the employees and catch them slacking off or offering the wrong person a company drink or taking an extra five minutes on their already meager break time. A mistake on the casino floor can cost you your livelihood in an instant. I had a younger sports writer who cashed his tip tickets without a manager present. He didn't really know better. They were his tips, so he figured, why not? He was dismissed within two days for this. My cocktail waitresses are told that only players spending $10 or more to get a free drink and they'll be written up for overcomping. The result is that they're afraid to give anyone comp drinks, which is a huge detriment to coming and playing. My policy is, and has been, to go for it every time. Risk big failure or stay home. The benefits of this approach are, at least to me, evident. You begin to see that everything is just an experiment. If you're paying attention, you'll learn multiple lessons from every single fuck-up. When you aren't afraid of making mistakes, your choices will become bolder and more confident. While more confident, you'll also understand what true humility feels like. The boundaries life will start to appear as flexible as they are, and with that flexibility comes freedom. We're all going to make mistakes. Step on our dicks, act an ass, blow it in both small and huge ways. It's unavoidable. Either you embrace that fact and learn from each one, or you beat yourself to death over every cut. One of the things we did, because uh, we're stuck in the house, Dana's more stuck in the house, I still come into the casino four days a week um, and because we need to have a manager present 24 hours a day because we've got hourly employees here that are uh, doing security. But uh, last week, we ended up deciding to go on a road trip social distance because nobody else was in the car with us to Rhyolite, Nevada. Now, when I first got to uh, Las Vegas, I met a guy named David Figler and he's a really nice guy. He's an attorney. Um, he is a big uh, contributor to the local NPR station. So I, I and, and he has done storytelling. So I kind of wanted to get a sense of what this place was all about. And one of the things that David told me was that if the, one of the best things in his opinion of living in Las Vegas was leaving Las Vegas, that all over Nevada and Arizona and Utah are these tiny little weird towns and great, amazing things to see and, and landscape and mountains and trails and just all this crazy shit. And one of the things he mentioned was Rhyolite, Nevada. Rhyolite was founded in 1905 and it was a gold mining town and it boomed, got to about 8,000 people in this tiny little town. And then within five years had like 14 people because it went bust. The mines dried up. Uh, 
Um, it's part of the story of Las Vegas is that it was founded on all these incredible gold and silver mines, and then everything dried up, and they went through, uh, as a state, a huge depression before things kind of popped back up with more gold and silver, and then eventually uh, the Las Vegas casino model and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, but we loved Rhyolite. Um, it was beautiful, It's but it's a ghost town. And so they're the bones of all these uh, buildings that were there 115 years ago and a couple of buildings that are still mostly intact. Got a, uh, There's a gold mine entrance. You can't really go in, but I mean, it's just beautiful. And just around the corner from it, and there's not really a corner, it's just down the dirt road, is the Goldwell Open Art Art open air art museum with these giant weird statues just out in the middle of the desert. Um, gorgeous, fun, had a lot of fun. And uh, it's one of those things that I think is really interesting about Las Vegas is because there were probably 30 or 40 people out there just getting outside, just doing their thing about two hours outside of Las Vegas. We were never within 25 feet of anybody took lots of pictures and just enjoyed the day had some lunch in the car on the way back and so it was a it was a really good day and on the way we kind of started talking about what this new economy is going to be like because i know that there are going to be elements of the old economy people are going to want to cling to after all of this and there are going to be completely new ways of doing things and and industries that are going to boom while other industries fail one example is that is i wonder i do i seriously wonder if movie theaters are ever going to be a thing again um i don't know um, I hope so, but I don't know. Um, I don't, there's plenty of things that are going to be different, but one of the things that, that has been interesting is that I'm super pleased that, uh, I'm kind of a vagabond, uh, journeyman, eh, whatever you want to call it. Cause my career's kind of been all over the place. And I mean, like I said, now I'm a, a casino manager, which is nothing I would have ever said I was going to do in my whole life. So this is kind of fun. So I wonder, uh, what I'll be doing next, but uh, the, following, the following story, the next story is just basically, it, it starts a little bit talking about my time when I first got here looking for something for work, and I was employed to sell windows. I've often indicated I do not possess the sales gene. My brief stint selling window replacements did garner me some insight on the process that as I look out in our divided country, I can't help but wonder if the technique used to get people to spend $30,000 to replace their windows might have some value in selling our most untenable ideas to one another. The art of selling windows, according to the two weeks of training I received, are found in gaining five commitments from the receiver. But the one that really vibrates for this is selling perspective in the marketplace of ideas concept is the first, the commitment to need. The training stressed that through a series of questions rather than statements, one needed to find at least three pain points in order to move forward. No pain points, no need for your services. Now, these are defined as locating using specific questions. The problems may people may be having that your product or service can rectify. Building up a sense of urgency and solving these pain points is the skill required. And that sense of urgency is created through appealing to an emotional rather than pragmatic foundation. Granted, these are leading questions. I mean, you're looking for the receiver's problems to emotionally connect with them in order to offer a solution. The most important aspect is that you are asking questions rather than making statements. 
The second part of this is to create a sense of urgency through emotions rather than pragmatics. People make decisions with their fallible, fickle, what-the-fuck feelings rather than what is perhaps in their best interest pragmatically. Even progressive liberals, even the alt-right and the SJWs, even your mom. Using this as a model, which, according to the window people, is foolproof, let's look at how we sell our ideas to the other side. The right says, these people are illegally in our country and are using resources and taking jobs that are rightfully mine and they are criminals, at least in terms of entering the country. The left says, these people are refugees and detaining them for avoiding the bureaucracy of immigration policies is inhumane. America was built upon immigrants. Neither is selling their specific idea. Neither is asking questions. Neither is persuasive in the least because no one is listening and everyone's talking past one another. The evolving of any discussion becomes the highly popular but completely ineffective shut up and listen to me approach. Then the name calling, doxing, death threats, and the election of Donald Trump. Using the window replacement sales technique, the right would ask questions. Have you experienced someone cutting in line in front of you? How did that make you feel? Do you know anyone who's experienced gang violence due to a drug war? Where do you think those drugs come from? Have you ever been passed up on employment only to find someone here illegally got the job? The left might ask other questions. Where did your forebears come from? Do you know the story of how they came to America and became citizens? Have you ever been waiting all day in a DMV only to be told that your paperwork isn't proper and come back tomorrow? Did you come back or put it off after that? Have you ever traveled to another country and didn't quite understand how things worked over there? How did it feel when no one spoke English? Both sides looking for common ground, both avoiding making statements or presenting facts. As we know, facts don't matter when it comes to emotional decisions and all decisions are emotional. Trust me, telling someone they're stupid for not replacing their windows despite the facts that their windows are 20 years old, warped, and are jacking up their monthly energy bill or ridiculous heights is not going to sell them on new windows. The simple, perhaps sad truth is that people mostly make decisions based on their own self-interest. You want that 0.2% of the country's police to be prosecuted for their racist abuse? Cater to the self-interest of the other 99.8% to police themselves and coordinate with citizen oversight to weed those renegade cops out of the force rather than simply declare that all police are evil. Find three pain points. Sell the solution. When it comes to sexual harassment, I think we're going, to, we're going about things all wrong. To dismiss the very personal question, what if it was your daughter or wife or sister or mother is a mistake. This sort of question makes it personal and emotionally connecting. It opens the pathway to empathy on an individual level. It exposes a potential pain point and leaves the receiver open to more information. For many years, I taught theatrical improvisation. I love improvisers. The very best of the best understood how contrary to human nature the art form is, selfless rather than selfish. That cream of the crop understood fundamentally that success was due almost entirely by focusing on your partner's success. The worst were only looking out for their moment to shine, effectively forcing the others to dance to his or her tune. One of the lessons I tried to impart was likewise simple to get, but, but difficult to employ. Communication is the responsibility of the person communicating, not the audience. If the audience isn't listening or understanding what it is you're trying to get across to them, it's your fault, not theirs. Complaints that they just didn't get it or they were a terrible audience are dodges from taking responsibility for being commu poor communicators. Call it 
tone policing if you want, but the fact is that if you're yelling at me, telling me I'm stupid or evil or indelibly stained with privilege, I'm not buying fucking windows from you. Ever. Ask questions. Understand that decisions are emotional rather than pragmatic. Appeal to self-interest. Sell those fucking windows. And that's episode 71 of Peculiar Journeys. Uh, I hope you're enjoying sort of the resurgence. Uh, I would love to be able to say it's all because of the pandemic. I think it's mostly just because uh, I realized I hadn't been doing it. And and I've been sort of amassing and compiling stories that I wanted to share. And this is my platform. So I hope you enjoy it. Uh, Please stay safe. Please do your best to social distance. Um, get Get out of your house if you can without being around people. Um, eat well, but not too well, because you'll get that fucking pandemic 15 and you'll have to fucking lose it somehow after and enjoy your days. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of the Peculiar Journeys podcast. For archived episodes, go to donhall.vegas slash podcast to hear stories of Chicago, of Millennium Park, and of the big move to Las Vegas. If you dig the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts and review the show. If you really dig the podcast, why not go to patreon.com slash peculiarjourneys and help fund the endeavor. Whatever you decide to do, thank you for listening, and I hope you come back for more of my peculiar journeys.